For the last several sessions, as we've been walking through these first couple chapters of Romans, you may have noticed that there's been something of a growing crisis in the the logic of what Paul's been saying. Two sessions ago, I gave that crisis a name, the bad news. And then in the last session, I I noted how in chapter two, Paul emphasizes that this bad news of human sin, it's not merely a problem for some people. It's something that extends to every group, regardless of ethnicity or religion. Jews and Gentiles alike are implicated in the story of human sin that Paul has been telling. Well, like I said, the the way that Paul is telling this story it seems to just be getting bleaker and bleaker. And in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, this whole train of thought comes to something of a crescendo. And here's how that section begins. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's the conclusion that Paul's been building up toward. That's what he wants his readers to understand. No one escapes this bad news. All Jews and Greeks, ancient Romans and modern Americans, all, he says, are under sin. It's an interesting phrase, you know, under sin. And when you first read it, it's not entirely clear what it means. Is this just a way of saying that everyone is guilty of sin? Well, not exactly. Paul will go on to say that. In verses 19 and 20, he says that every person is found guilty when they are judged by God's law. But when he uses this phrase, under sin, he seems to be getting at something a little different. You see, sometimes when Paul uses the word sin, hamartia in Greek, he has in mind unjust and evil human thoughts or actions. Sin is something that people do. Like when he says in verse 23 of this chapter that all have sinned as a verb. In that case, he's using the word sin to refer to to wrongdoing and transgression. But sometimes when Paul uses the word sin, he uses it to refer to a, a controlling and a kind of malevolent power that rules over human lives. Sometimes he talks about sin in a way that suggests that it's a kind of evil and sinister force that's actively working to enslave and destroy men and women. The preacher and theologian Fleming Rutledge, she describes it well when she says, Paul personifies sin in his writings as though it were a reigning monarch. He depicts sin with its favorite and characteristic weapons, death and the law, forcefully advancing through the world like an annihilating army. Sin and death thus have the character of universal forces which no one escapes. And here in chapter 3, as Paul comes to the conclusion of the argument that he's been mounting, that seems to be what he has in mind when he talks about being under sin. The problem isn't just that people do bad things. It's much worse than that. The problem is that we, all of us, Jews and Greeks, we are all being effectively controlled by sin. 
We are, as Paul will say later, slaves to sin. We have fallen entirely under its sway and reign. That's a pretty bold claim, of course. And, you know, it doesn't seem quite right. After all, sure, we make mistakes, you might say. But aren't most of us, or at least some of us, genuinely good people? Isn't Paul being a bit melodramatic here? And now, it does seem that Paul expected that people might question him at this point. Because right after he makes that claim about all being under sin, he goes on to reinforce it by quoting a whole bunch of Old Testament scriptures from the Psalms and from the Hebrew prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. A whole bunch of verses that he strings together to make the basic point that no, he's not being overly dramatic. And yes, things really are this bad. But then where does this leave us? If things are really that bad, if everyone everywhere is not only guilty, but actually being controlled and manipulated by the power of sin, what are we to do about it? Well, from Paul's perspective, there's really nothing we can do. We've sealed our fate and there's no way out. But that's where the good news comes in. Because even though we can do nothing about this crisis of guilt and enslavement that we find ourselves in, God can. And in verses 23 to 25 of this chapter, Paul tells us exactly what God does to solve this crisis. For all have sinned, he says, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. As some people are not at all satisfied with this solution that Paul gives. For instance, Richard Dawkins, the famous English atheist, he thinks that this solution is both unnecessary and absurd. If God wanted to forgive our sins, he says, why not just forgive them? without having himself tortured and executed in payment. Of course, Richard Dawkins isn't the first person to voice this objection, nor will he be the last. Many people have wondered why, when faced with the problem of human guilt and wrongdoing, why God doesn't just forgive. After all, wouldn't that be the, the more mature thing to do? Wouldn't that be the, the kinder and more loving thing to do? Why make it such a big deal? Why not just forgive? It's an understandable question, but it's important to remember what Paul says about the gospel back in the opening thesis of his letter, what we talked about in the first session. What is revealed in the gospel is not simply the kindness of God, but his righteousness, his justice. And if God simply forgave, if he chose to simply overlook or turn a blind eye to the selfishness and greed and envy that so often rule our lives, if he simply dismissed our indiscretions and mistreatment of one another, if God simply forgave injustice and immorality, then he might be kind, but he would not be just and he would not be good. We may think lightly of our sin, but God knows the grief and misery that it has brought into our lives and the lives of those around us. 
he sees the destructive power of sin. And because he is just, he does not look away. In fact, as Paul said back in chapter 1, the unrighteousness on display among us provokes not apathy or indifference from God, but wrath. And that is a good thing. For as the Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf, as he said when he was reflecting on the horrific injustices and atrocities that he witnessed in the civil war in Yugoslavia, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. But God is worthy of worship because, as Paul says, he is not only kind, he is also just. But as I said in our very first session, the, the justice, the righteousness of God does not simply consist in rewarding the good and meeting out punishment to the bad. If it did, then it's hard to see how the book of Romans, at least at this point, could be anything but bad news. But Paul insists that the righteousness of God is good news because he understands that God's righteousness is what compels him not simply to do what is right or to make righteous judgments, but to put a world that has gone wrong to rights. And one of the ways that he does that is, again, as Paul says in verse 25, by putting forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood, as he phrases it. That's what Paul says in verse 25. And in many ways, it's right at the heart of his message in this chapter. So it's important that we understand exactly what Paul is saying here. And in the, in the time that's left, that's what I'd like to do. First, unpack what Paul means when he talks about Jesus being put forward as a propitiation. And then to respond to a few objections that people sometimes have to this claim. But first, what does Paul mean in these verses? Well, let's talk about this word propitiation. It's a very religious sounding word to a lot of people, but it's not actually particularly religious in meaning. In fact, it actually has a very, fairly simple meaning. To quote the English preacher John Stott, to propitiate somebody means to appease or pacify his anger. So a propitiation then is something which is offered or done to satisfy and appease someone's anger. And of course, that immediately raises some questions in the minds of some people for, for some people object to the very notion that God would ever get angry. After all, isn't that the, that seems like the behavior of some pagan deity. Aren't they the ones who fly off the handle and have to be placated? God isn't really like that, is he? Well, it's a big question, but let me say two things very briefly to this objection. First, it's absolutely true that the God of the Bible is not like some pagan deity who becomes irate and has to be pacified. The one true God is simply not like that. As the Articles of Religion in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer say, there is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions. To say that God is without passions is to say that God God is not overcome by feelings or emotions. God isn't like you or me. He doesn't fly off the handle. He can't be controlled by emotions or passions, and that includes anger. 
In fact, as God himself tells Moses in Exodus 34, he doesn't become angry easily. He is slow to anger. But just because he doesn't have passions like we do doesn't mean he has no anger. In fact, the theme of God's anger or wrath, it's all over the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. The prophets talk about God's anger. The Psalms talk about God's anger. Jesus himself talks repeatedly about God's anger or wrath. And they are all consistent in their affirmation that God is indeed angry over human sin and that this anger is a natural outworking of his love for his creation and his opposition to its destruction. To quote John Stott once again, the wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. God is angry, and rightly so, over the sin that corrupts and destroys his creation. And because, because he is also just, he insists on carrying out the sentence of death against it. Evil cannot be overlooked. It can't be tolerated. Evil must be put to death. And that's where Jesus comes in. In the Old Testament, God provided the people of Israel with a, a system of animal sacrifices that they could use to satisfy his just anger toward their sin. And Paul is drawing specifically on that history when he talks about Jesus in verse 25. In fact, the word that we translate as propitiation here, it's, it's actually a word that was used to refer to a specific part of the sacrificial ritual in Leviticus, where an animal would be put to death to atone for the sins of Israel. What Paul is saying, in other words, is that God offered Jesus Christ as an atoning sacrifice for human sin. By his blood, as he puts it, Jesus takes upon himself the righteous opposition of God toward the evil that destroys creation. And this, he says, was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, once again, this won't satisfy all our questions, nor does it answer all the different objections people have made to the notion of Jesus' death as a sacrifice. In fact, you yourself may be struggling with unanswered questions about what Paul is saying here. And maybe you're wondering how it is just for one man to stand in as a substitute for others, for one man to take upon himself judgment and wrath that rightly belongs to others. If so, I encourage you to continue in your study of Romans. For while Paul doesn't, he doesn't really answer that question here, he does offer something of an answer later when he talks about the intimate union and identity that exists between Jesus and those who are bound to him through faith. Or maybe, maybe that's not your holdup. Maybe you still think that God's wrath is just unnecessary, and it would have been better if God had just forgiven sin. If that's the case, I encourage you to read again the first several chapters and take seriously what Paul says about the universal reach and the destructive effects of human unrighteousness, or just take some time to consider the deep harm that is caused by unjust and abusive behavior and ask yourself, would a God who overlooks such injustice be worthy of worship?
Paul certainly didn't think so. For Paul, the good news of the gospel is not only that God is kind or forgiving. For Paul, the good news of the gospel is that in a world of injustice, a world of abuse, a world of wrongdoing, that there is a God whose righteousness compels him not simply to condemn the guilty, but to set things right. And he is so committed to setting things right that he is even willing to take the consequence of human sin upon himself in the person of Jesus, that he, the righteous judge, is willing to become the one condemned so that he, as Paul says, might be both just and the justifier, both a God of righteous indignation and a God who in love makes all things right.